the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanan. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool, the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete for us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and went over by number, twelve from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Asahel was a fleet, was fleet of foot as a gazelle. So Asahel pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and lay hold, of, no, lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Azahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of his spear, so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Azahel fell down and died stood still. Joab and Abishai, Abishai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amah, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter, di- in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken surely then by morning, all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel any more, nor did they fight any more. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithron, and they came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, 
there were missing of David's servants, 19 men and Azahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. Then they took up Azahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which is in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to this passage of your scriptures, we ask for your illumination. We see this historical account of a battle of two great generals, uh, two kings, uh, the, the son of Saul becoming a king and David rising to the, uh, the kingship of Judah. Father, help us to understand this in light of your great counsel, how David is acting out his kingly responsibilities and how other men, lesser men, are acting out their own selfish desires. Help us to discern these things, Lord, and to give thought to our own lives as to how we can best serve you to follow in the ways of David, but not in the ways of Abner and Joab. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. In today's passage, we encounter several strong and passionate personalities, some God-fearing and others self-serving. We encounter the outbreak of a civil war. We see David being anointed by the tribe of Judah while Ishbosheth, Saul's son, is elevated to a kingly role by his deceased father's major general. All Israel is in disarray. David is doing his very best to focus his attention on the Lord and work within God's revealed will. And by way of contrast, Many of those around him are anxious to seize power and are haughty in spirit and are heading headlong toward their own destruction. The players in this scene of God's history are somewhat complicated. We're introduced to Ishbosheth, a 40-year-old son of Saul. This is the first mention of Ishbosheth in the scriptures, and very little is revealed about him. His older brother Jonathan, no doubt, overshadowed him in accomplishments, and therefore Ishbosheth remained obscure and is so in the scriptures. Ishbosheth has a tremendous ally named Abner. Abner was Saul's major general throughout much of Saul's military exploits. Abner is an example of a man of some character, but is on the wrong side of history here. His self-appointed act of elevating Ishbosheth to the throne, though seemingly politically correct, was an affront to God. Abner's counterpart in David's army is Joab. Both Abner and Joab were accomplished warriors and friends at one point, but Joab was different in demeanor than Abner. Joab appears to have been a man of seemingly unbridled passion. The descriptions of Joab in the scriptures are that he was fiercely loyal to David, but was self-serving in his pursuit of David's kingship. He could be characterized as the man who would leap into battle before assessing the battlefield. He would leap before he looked. Joab had two brothers that were also fiercely loyal to David and were just as passionate as Joab. Their names are Abishai 
and Azahel. We know of their loyalty because in 1 Samuel 26, David is looking for volunteers to go with him to sneak into Saul's camp to show Saul how vulnerable he was. Remember, Saul had been pursuing David to kill him. And at several different points in time, David had the opportunity to actually kill Saul, but never raised his hand to the Lord's anointed. In 1 Samuel 26, we see one of those occasions. David wants to take a volunteer or few volunteers into the very camp of Saul while they're sleeping and go into Saul's tent to show Saul how, how vulnerable he truly was and yet not take his life. David's looking for those volunteers to go in with him to Saul's camp and Abishai, Joab's brother, is the first to volunteer. Then here in today's passage, Azahel, the other brother of Joab, is described as a man swift of foot who pursues Abner, but only to his own peril. The text, however, begins with David seeking the Lord's will. And this is David's second kingly act. On the heels of the first chapter, where we saw David's first kingly act uh, being that of, of uh, pronouncing judgment on the Amalekite, here David's second kingly act is found in verses 1 and 2. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. Now contrast this to Saul. Unlike Saul, when David was in a precarious position, David sought out the Lord and his counsel. Saul would have relied on his own wisdom. David's desire here was to honor God in all things. As I said before, Israel is in chaos. It's divided throughout the land. David's the anointed one of God, and yet he doesn't want to go ahead of God in following as the king. He wants God to direct him. So David's desire was to honor God in all things. He would not always be successful in that pursuit, as we see later in the book, as he commits sin with Bathsheba. But here, he's pursuing God, and God revealed to him that he was to go to his own tribe with God's blessing, the tribe of Judah. Once there, we see David anointed again, but this time by his fellow clansmen, the tribe of Judah, for he had already been anointed by God. David is then told that the men of Jabesh-Gilead had honored the king Saul and had buried Saul, no doubt under threat to their own lives by the Philistines. This act of bravery and honor is not lost on David. Once again, Though Saul had pursued David to kill him, David commends the men of Jabesh-Gilead for, burning, or for burying God's anointed. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. David never wavers from his commitment to honor the Lord's anointed. Even though Saul was unfaithful to God, David never took it upon himself to be judge of Saul. That was the Lord's business. But here David commends the men of Jabesh-Gilead for their faithfulness to God's anointed. Meanwhile, 
Abner, Saul's general, is assessing the same circumstances that David is assessing. He sees the the calamity of Israel. But unlike David, who seeks God's will, Abner relies on his own wisdom, much like his predecessor Saul. As he assesses the circumstance, he decides to elevate Ishbosheth, Saul's 40-year-old son, to the vacant throne of Israel. Two notable things arise in this act. First, Abner is a man of great power in Israel. Though Saul was killed in battle, Abner still commands the armies of God. And it would have been easy for Abner to elevate himself to the throne of Israel, but he chooses not to. I'll come back to that in a few moments as well. The second notable thing is, and much more importantly, is that Abner does not seek out God's perspective on all this, as I've mentioned already. Unlike David, Abner does not solicit God in prayer. Instead, he acts much more like his former commander and relies on his own wisdom. Much like the kings of the nations surrounding Israel, Abner assumes that the next king must come from the lineage of the previous king. And in this case, that is Saul. Abner does not assume to himself the authority of kingship, though he had the power to do so. However, Abner does rely on man's wisdom in elevating Ishbosheth. So though he had not the authority to raise up a king, he assumes that authority to himself. Then from verse 12 through the end of the chapter, we learn of the outbreak of the first civil war in Israel. Civil wars are the most ruthless and costly wars known to men. They are the epitome of selfish envy. They are the mirror image of the perceived conflict between Cain and Abel, only on a much grander scale, where a brother takes life of a brother. By way of illustration, our nation's own civil war cost more American lives than all the wars we have fought before and since combined. Israel is about to suffer a civil war that will later be relived because of David's sin with Bathsheba for years to come. Here, because of Abner's unwillingness to seek God's will and Ishbosheth's complicity with Abner, Israel would lose many sons at the hands of their brethren. In verse 12, we find Abner and Joab on opposite sides of the pool of Gibeon, contemplating hostilities with one another. Abner has traveled some distance to Gibeon with his men. He has crossed the Jordan River from Hanayim and has headed back to the edge of Canaan to Gibeon. Joab is on familiar terrain as Judah's inheritance in Palestine included the city of Gibeon though at this time it was likely occupied by the Canaanites. While eyeing one another across the pool of Gibeon, Abner proposes a contest between the armies of Ishbosheth and David. Both armies will send out young warriors to fight to the death, and the squad that wins will be the victors of something. It's never mentioned. 
The prize is never identified. Why would these two brethren, these two groups of brethren, fight with one another? What would be to gain? Well, presumably, the prize would be the assumption of authority in all of Israel, authoritative control over the whole of Israel. But such was not the case that day. Twenty-four young men are sent out to skirmish, and they fight to a stalemate. It's interesting that the generals send out the young men to do their fighting. All 24 die at their brother's hands, and there is no clear victor. Unsatisfied with the outcome, the two armies engage in a full-scale conflict, and Abner's forces are routed, and Abner flees and is pursued by Azahel, the gazelle. Azahel's passion to overtake and presumably kill Abner led to his own demise. Azahel made a tactical blunder. He outran his reserves and was killed by a more experienced warrior with the plunge of a, the butt of a spear through his abdomen and out his back. 360 men of Abner's army died that day, while only 20 of Joab's force, forces died including Azahel. Though Joab's forces had won the day, nothing had changed. Ishbosheth was on the throne in Israel, David and Judah, and brethren were at one another's throats. Do you see the futility of civil war? Do you see how futile it is, and yet so costly? Brethren, providentially, this scene would have ramifications in the future. Joab would become all the more arrogant and defiant, while Abner would soon question his allegiance to Ishbosheth. But for this day, the carnage was evident, and little, if anything, had been accomplished. Now, I want to come to some applications. It seems like, what, how do we apply this? What do we do with this great story? It's, it's for those who like, I was reminded this week of a quote from Robert E. Lee, who said, uh, it, it is good, and this is a paraphrase of the quote, it is good that war is so horrible, otherwise we would love it so. Well, it's been shown right here that it was a horrible thing. 380 men died, 360 from Israel, 20 from Judah, and nothing was accomplished. But there are some applications to be seen here. They come from David, who we only see a short time at the beginning of this chapter. But let's think about what David's doing. To this point, David has done three kingly acts in the space of just a few days. First, he passes judgment on an enemy of God, the Amalekite, who had killed Saul. We saw that in the previous chapter. Second, he seeks the Lord's will in prayer, asking whether he should go to Judah. God answers that prayer with specificity, to which David gladly complies. Think about this now. David accomplished what Saul had been given to do to annihilate the Amalekites and refused to do 
David actually accomplishes that at when Saul dies. He does that in chapter 1. And now David turns his focus to the Lord. The Lord's anointed is dead. Who is going to fix the calamity of Israel? And David seeks the face of the Lord. And he does it with humility. He says, shall I go up to Judah? The Lord says, yes. Where shall I go in Judah? And the Lord tells him with specificity, and he goes. He seeks the Lord's will, and he does it. But the third thing that David does here is to issue a decree commending the men of Jabesh-Gilead for burying Saul, the Lord's anointed. Why is this important? It may be, seem to be insignificant, but upon greater scrutiny, we find that it's very significant. Let me give you a little background. Abner and Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth have set up Saul's continuing kingdom on the east side of the Jordan, putting a natural boundary between Ishbosheth and the enemies of Israel, the Philistines and the Canaanites. They have gone to the opposite side of the Jordan. Now, in God's providences, two tribes of Israel were actually occupying the east side of the Jordan, and the other eight tribes were, were occupying the west side of the Jordan. But the authority of Israel was supposed to be on the west side of the Jordan. There was one person there. His name is David. And he is occupying a city that the Canaanites believe belongs to them. And yet David and his valiant warriors who are with him occupy that city. The location of Jabesh-Gilead, where these men had come to bury Saul's body, is on the east side of the Jordan River. In fact, as best can be determined by scholars, the city of Mahanaim is right next to Jabesh-Gilead. They are sister cities in terms of where they exist, on the east side of the Jordan River. And David sends emissaries to Jabesh-Gilead to commend them for crossing the river, going into the Canaanite, Canaanite territory, getting Saul's body, and burying it, honoring the anointed of the Lord. David commends those living in a kingdom of Ishbosheth for their honoring of God's anointed. Now, one may say that this was a political move designed to weaken Ishbosheth's reign. However, I believe this would be reading too much into the passage. David has steadfastly said over and over that he would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, Saul. Furthermore, when the Amalekite in the previous chapter did raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, David had him executed for his brazen, presumptuous act. Again, David is honoring the Lord's anointed. And David's demeanor is without question committed to the honoring of the Lord's anointed, whoever that may be, and even if that person does not reciprocate that honor, as Saul did not. Moreover, here he commends the men from Jabesh-Gilead for doing what he's been doing, honoring the Lord's anointed. 
This is not a character flaw in David, nor is it, in my opinion, a political act. This is a model for righteousness. And David's trying to show that not only to those in Judah, but in Israel as well. Unfortunately, neither Abner nor Ishbosheth can see this example as an instructive example, honoring the, God, the Lord's anointed. For neither Abner nor Ishbosheth, neither were anointed by God to any authority in Israel. Now in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, soon we will see that David's respect for the Lord's anointed extends to the household of Saul as well, when he takes Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, into his own court. In chapter 13 of the, the same book, David, the demeanor of David comes to a great fruition as he deals with Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, while here he's dealing with Ishbosheth, Saul's son. Why do I bring this to our attention? Well, I'm trying to bring some sense to this passage. What do we have to benefit from all of this? Here's the benefit, brethren. David prefigures our Lord Jesus in this manner, this manner of faithfulness. Even when dishonored by his own people, David remains faithful to God and his anointed ones. He prefigures Christ in that. Jesus was dishonored by his own people, was he not? Did they they not pursue him even unto death? Yet, Jesus did not despise the anointed of God. On the contrary, on the contrary, he gave his life for the anointed of God. You, brethren, are God's anointed. David did all he could to honor Saul's memory, both in life and in death. And Jesus, Jesus honored his Father in purchasing redemption for those who were chosen before the foundation of the world, the anointed of God, you and me. That's the lesson we learn here. David lived out his faith at great cost but not nearly as great as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave His life a ransom for many. Now, Jesus is God's anointed as well, is He not? Was He anointed and brought to the right hand of the Father, where He sits until the Father makes His enemies a footstool for His feet? Is He not anointed to the highest place in all the universe? the very right hand of the Father. Ought we not to honor the Lord's anointed, the Father's anointed? Ought we not to proclaim His goodness to all men, just as David proclaimed to the men of Jabesh-Gilead their faithfulness to the Lord's anointed Saul? That too is our calling. May it always be on our lips. May we embrace that anointing and the honoring of it 
with both arms tightly wrapped around our Savior by and through the power of the Spirit. Let us pray together.